Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, down through verse 17, the voice of Jesus speaks to us like this. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. And he came and he preached peace to you who are near. This is the word of God to us. Let's pray. King Jesus, man, we come under the authority of your word. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask now to the glory of the Father that you would speak to us, that you would open up our minds, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would call us forward in faith and repentance, that God, as we said just a moment ago, you are resurrected King Jesus. We confess that together. We believe that. Your word is living and active, and it knows how to address the various needs and places in our heart. And so, God, I pray you would accomplish all your purpose today. Would you move us one more degree into intimacy with Jesus, to conformity to Jesus? Would you move us one more degree into obedience to Jesus? Would you move us one more degree in delighting in Jesus? Help us delight in Jesus today, God. We pray in his strong name. Have your church. Amen. Amen. Well, this uh, Labor Day weekend is always a fun weekend. If you're a football fan, as you well know, it's the opening weekend of college football season, huh? Anybody watch football yesterday? A few of you, and the wives roll their eyes and go, yeah, it's back. <laughs> oh, it's back. I'll have my family together at Christmas. Um, well, hey, listen, every time uh, college football season rolls around, I have this memory that rolls forward in my mind uh, of... Um, Growing up in Oklahoma, I'm an Oklahoma State fan, so I know I'm telling this story, and I'm like, it's a, it's a, it's a house divided. Some people are doing pistols firing signs. People are like, want to shout boomer and all that kind of stuff. But hey, here we are. We're one big happy family, right? My freshman year of college, uh, I went to the Bedlam game uh, in Stillwater and with my best friend, and uh, it's, it's a memory of college football that I will never forget. So we go that year, and as is usual for Oklahoma State, uh, we're, our only hopes in that game are just to spoil OU's national championship run, right? That's our only hope. We're just trying to vindicate ourselves as little brother and as the other college in this state, right? And so we go, and uh, this is the year is 2002, and so if you can remember, uh, these, this is the Les Mile era. And so uh, the year before, we had won in Norman, 1613, Rashawn Woods catches the beautiful pass in the corner of the end zone, and all the Orange Bowl hopes are dashed, Right? Now it's in Stillwater, and uh, the crowd is hype. It's a Thanksgiving weekend. The crowd is electric. We're ready to go. My friend and I pile into the student section, and then uh, we're, you know, we're feeling like an upset is about to happen again because our season was worthless, but maybe we can do it here and redeem the whole thing. And uh, walks in right behind us are two OU fans in the sea of orange, right? 
and they were exactly what OU fans are in a sea of orange, obnoxious, God's gift to football. We are everything it means to love football. And so they were letting the entire student section know, we're OU fans, we're the only two, we're right here, and they're right behind me, and I'm feeling all this fire burning in my chest. After all, it's Bedlam weekend, right? And so the game begins, OU gets the ball first, and they roll down the field, and they score like we weren't even on the field, like it was a scrimmage. And uh, it was horrible. It was pathetic. And I'm like, yeah, I've seen this story play out my entire life. Here it goes again. And uh, it's just one more year that Oklahoma State goes home sad after Bedlam weekend. And uh, so they go down and score. And these two fans, right, all the home fans were like totally depressed. And these two OU guys behind me are yelling, they're high-fiving, they're talking trash to everybody. They might be a minority, but they feel like they're the majority. And so they're just running around. And I turn around because I'm a freshman, and I need them to know that I matter, and I want to show them my disapproval for what they're doing. So with my arms folded, I turned around and kind of gave them this look and this scowl, you know, as though they needed that. Well, in the midst of all that, he thought he would capitalize on my pain, and he throws his hand up in my face as though I'm going to give him a high-five, taunting me. I'm telling you, I've never felt such a fire in my chest in those first 18 years of my life as I did in that moment. That probably tells you where my idolatry lies, right? (laughs) Those are the negative emotions rising up in my heart. So then the good guys get the ball. And yes, I mean the good guys. Oklahoma State got the ball, right? And so OU kicks off, and I'll never forget it. It was a two-play drive, and uh, it was a pass from Josh Fields to Rashawn Woods. Beautiful touchdown pass. And uh, we're back in the game. So now the home crowd is electric. Now the home crowd is turning around. Now we're doing our thing. It's 7-7. We're back in the game. Who knows what's going to happen now? And so I turn around to these guys who once taunted me, and I wanted to taunt them. So I turned around and threw up my high five. Like, now you're going to do that to me? I threw up my high five. When I did that, my best friend, who's 6'5 and massive, turns around as though to give me a high five, but he didn't know I was trying to give them a high five. So he turns around to do this, and the whole student section is cramped. He bumps into me. Then he throws me into the OU guy and now I tackle him into the stands (laughs) now I'm on top of this guy and he thinks I'm trying to fight him and he's screaming and he's trying to push me off of him and the whole student section then jumps in and was like cheering me on like I'm in a fight my best friend grabs me pulls me up off of the guy he gets up well now the whole crowd has taken up my case they're fighting this guy they're yelling at this guy I'm totally out of it at this point there's nothing I'm doing in this whole thing Security guards come, they escort the two OU fans, and OSU fans scream like we just won the national championship, right? (laughs) And it might be the only national championship we ever win in football, but I'm totally for it, and I'm all orange even to this day. It's a fantastic memory that my friend and I have. He's even in the room today. He came in town for this weekend. And uh, the story gets bigger every single year, right? The story gets bigger. Every time we tell this story, he's like, hey, remember the time you fought that OU guy? And I'm like, no. Remember the time your big butt bumped me into that guy and almost got me in a fight I didn't want to be in, right? We tell that story all the time. And uh, it's this thing we love to remember. It's a a story we love to look back on uh, and to rehearse. And here's the thing, right? I bring that up today. Because remembering is a powerful thing, isn't it? Remembering is a powerful thing. We think back on past moments in our life, and there's a way that there's a certain kind of remembering of fun and happy memories with friends where we've made galvanizing bonds of friendship and whatever else. There's moments we can look back on a certain kind of remembering, and it gives us energy. It gives us perspective in the present to remind us that, oh, yeah, life isn't as bad as sometimes I think it is. We look back at these sweet moments, these sweet rememberings, and it gives us a posture to think toward the future. 
there's a way we remember God's faithfulness as we look back, and it gives us a posturing as we think toward the future. And I bring that up because, again, remembering is a powerful thing, and that's exactly what's going on in this passage. It's the thing we're commanded to do in the passage laid before us today. Notice what I'm talking about back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He begins verse 11, he says, therefore, remember. He says, remember, therefore, remember. And verse 12, skip down to verse 12. Look at the first word of verse 12. He repeats himself. He says, remember. And so two times in the first two verses of this passage, we're given the same command, remember. Now, if we were walking through the book of Ephesians this morning, uh, through these first, uh, this first chapter and a half, what we'd find is through all of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, there are no commands. There are no commands, no to-dos, no directives, no imperatives, nothing like that. The first chapter and a half is all about all the things that God has done for us in Jesus. All the blessings, all the love, all the choosing, all the forgiving, all the redemption, the lavish wisdom, the lavish knowledge that he pursues us with, the fact that we were once dead, he's made us alive. It's by grace you've been saved. This is no work of your own, but it's by faith. You are God's workmanship. This is all lavishing you and doting on you of God's blessing over you. That's the first chapter and a half. So the very first command we get in the book of Ephesians comes right here in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. And the first command is remember. Remember. Now hang on with me. That's a strange command, isn't it? Like that's not the command that most of us would think would come in a passage like this. Like for most of us, the way we reduce the Christian message, we would think that it would be some kind of command of a moral behavior or a moral directive, or a stop doing this. Most of us think of the Christian message or the Christian faith as that. Don't do certain things and do certain things, and that's what all of the Bible's about. And so you get this command, remember here, and it strikes us as odd, right? Most of us, in some ways, would prefer a, maybe a moral command. Maybe some of us would prefer uh, a command of a directive in some sort of moral absolute. Maybe we would prefer that, and here's why. Because we want to stack ourselves up against other people who aren't doing so good, and we want to measure ourselves on self-righteousness and know how good we're doing, right? And so this command shows up as odd. Remember, the very first command we get in this book. But here's the reality. Here's why God gives us this command. Because the Christian life is never about how good you're doing. The Christian life is never about how good you're doing. When you reduce the Christian life to a list of moral directives, you've reduced the Christian life to something God never intended it to be. The Christian life is not how good you're doing at God's moral lists, whatever that is that we've made up. The Christian life is all about how good God has been to you. That's the Christian life. The whole Christian life is how, has, how good has God been to you? And then we respond accordingly with lives of gratitude. So this passage commands us to remember. Remember. Because we are people prone to forget. We're prone to forget the goodness of God. So the command is clear. But here's the question I want us to answer this morning. What is it that God wants us to remember? It's not just remember, generally speaking. It's not just remember generic kinds of memories. He's asking us to remember something specific. What is it that God wants us to call to mind? He wants us to call to mind and remember our personal story of redemption. 
It's the way in which God has saved you, the way in which God has pursued you, the way in which God has come after you. He wants us to remember this. He wants us to rehearse this. It's your story, one story with two scenes. It's your life before Jesus. When you were separated from God, that's scene one. And scene two, it's your life with Christ having been brought near to God. And so there's two moves in this passage, and the two moves capture both of these scenes. So verses 11 and 12 give us scene one, our life before Christ, separated from God. And verses 13 through 17 give us scene two and turn toward how we've been brought near. So let's look at scene one, verses 11 and 12. It says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made uh, in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so right out of the gates, this passage is loaded with a lot of strange language, right? He starts throwing out terms like Gentiles. He starts throwing out circumcision, uncircumcision, which makes us uncomfortable. He starts throwing out terms like the commonwealth of Israel, uh, covenants of promise. What, what in the world is he talking about? Let me make it plain. Paul is commending us to remember that there was a time when all of us who are believers, when all of us who have faith in Jesus, there is a time that you were not believers in Jesus. So sometimes I come around and I hear stories of people who say, I'll say, when, were you, when did you become a Christian? When, when did Jesus save you? And the answer will sometimes be, I don't know. I guess I've always been a Christian. And this passage is coming to direct, directly confront that idea to say, no, no, that, that, that can't be an answer. That's not the case. No one has always been a Christian. There's a time for those who are believers when you were not yet a believer. Maybe some of you are in that place today where you're coming and you're checking out Jesus and you're not a believer. Anyone who is a follower of Jesus, there was a time when you were not a follower of Jesus. He says there was a time when you were separated from Christ, alienated from him, strangers to the people of God. And so what he talks about when he mentions some of this loaded language that we're not typically using in our most regular conversations, things like Gentiles, has everything to do with his immediate context. So in the Bible, when you think about the two people groups in the Bible, there are the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, whom God graced to be those who would bring about the Messiah into the world. And then there's Gentiles. So there's the Jewish people and there's Gentiles. And Gentiles are just everybody else, people like you and me, the Jewish people and everyone else. And God gave to the Jewish people special revelation. He gave them special graces that he didn't give to everyone else. But what Ephesians 2 is saying is that though we as Gentiles were once far off, though we as Gentiles were once cut off with no hope and without God, a way now has been made in Jesus so that this is no longer true. For those who look on trust to Jesus, we're no longer far off. We're no longer cut off. And so we must never become accustomed. This passage is saying, remember, it was once that way, it's now no longer this way. And so we must never become so accustomed to our salvation so as to think that we're entitled to it or that we're deserving of it or that we're owed to it. For those of us who are Gentiles, the only reason that salvation is on the table is because God put his son on the table. It's not something we're owed. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we're entitled to. It's the grace of God that he came and he took those who were once cut off and he brought them near. And so notice this strong phrase at the end of verse 12. 
He says that you were without hope and without God in the world. He says you were without hope. There was a time when you were without hope and without God in the world. Now, that's a massively strong phrase, incredibly strong phrase. So what does he mean to say that there was a time when we were without hope, that there was a time when we were without God? What does it mean for someone to be without God? What does it mean to be without God in the world, for us to be that way? Notice at the beginning of, just before that in verse 12, he says that we were strangers to the covenants of promise. And so what it means to be without God is to be a stranger to the promises of God. It means that the promises of God aren't for you. They're not working toward you. They're not for your good. To be without hope and without God means that you're cut off from the promises of God. And so I want to show you, for example, two Old Testament covenants that that give illustration of what I'm talking about. Genesis 17. Look at what God says to Abraham. This is the covenant he gives to Abraham. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you to be God to you and to your descendants after you. He says, I will establish my covenant and the covenant is to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Similarly, Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, this is the covenant I will make to the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts and I will be my, their God and they will be my people. So the common thread and the covenants of promise for God and his people is this. I will be your God and you will be my people. And so what this means is that God is for you and not against you. It means that his people are on the receiving end of all the good that he, with all his power and with all his might, they're on the receiving end that all of he can bring in goodness. This includes forgiveness of sins. This includes all things working together for good. This includes the way that God provides everything in your life, including eternal life. So then what Paul says to us, remember, there was a time when you were without God. What Paul is saying here is he's not saying that there was a time when you lacked knowledge about God. He wasn't saying that there was a time when you didn't know enough about God. What he means when he says you were without God, he says, remember that there was a time when God was not your God. And that he would not be for us if it weren't for Jesus. And if he was not your God, then he was not for you, but he was against you. If he had not come near to us in Jesus, there's nothing that we could ever do to get near to him. We would simply be left to ourselves. To be without hope and without God means he's not your God. He's not for you. And his promises aren't working toward you. This is your life without Christ, apart from him, hopeless without God. So here's what I want to stop and just ask a question this morning. When is the last time that you paused and just thought where your life would be if it weren't for Jesus? When's the last time you paused and just thought, where would my life be if it weren't for Jesus? Like, what would you be caught up in right now if God hadn't sent his son and made you aware of him? Do you believe that you'd be utterly hopeless if it weren't for Jesus? Do you believe that? What would you be caught up in? 
Do you really believe that you'd be hopeless if it weren't for Jesus? You see, what Paul is saying here is if we're going to love Jesus like he deserves to be loved, if we're going to do what this text says, remember, remember, you are not always joined to Christ, but you were cut off from him in unbelief. Once you were not a part of the people of God, you were alienated from the commonwealth. Once the promises of God were nowhere near you, but you were a stranger to all the covenants. You were entirely without God and without hope. If we're going to love Jesus the way he ought to be loved, then we've got to remember scene one was dark and even darker than we know. And so Paul commands us to remember what we were saved from and call to mind the condition of our life before and without Christ. And so this is the first scene of your story. For anyone who knows Jesus, this is the first scene of your story. Again, it's dark. You were cut off. But it doesn't end there. For those who believe, there's a second scene that is filled with hope. It's filled with promise. And we are commanded to take hold of the second scene of our story every bit as much as we're called to take hold of the first. So look back at verse 13. Verse 13 says this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, we remember that. We remember that at a time we were separated from him. He says, but now you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And so check this out. Here's, here's what this text is saying. That because of what Jesus has done in spilling his own blood, for us, we are no longer have to fear ever being separated again. Because Jesus stood in our place and took the condemnation from God for our sin that we deserved, because he stood in our place, you and I never have to fear ever being condemned by God. Because Jesus went outside the camp and he was crucified, he separated himself from the people of God and was crucified, forsaken by the Father, you and I never have to fear ever being cut off from the people of God and no longer have to fear any future separation from God, from his promises or from his presence. Because of what Jesus has done, all separation has been abolished. We need to hear that this morning. Because of what Jesus has done, all separation from God has been abolished for those who believe. And all we know is the nearness of God forever, even though sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Our feelings don't determine truth. The famous passage in Romans chapter 8 picks up on this reality for those who are in Jesus. It says, so what shall we say to these things? If God is for us this much, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure of this, that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things in the present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has abolished all separation. He was condemned, you're not. He was cut off so that you would never have to be. He was separated so that we never have to fear anything like that. So I just wanna pause for a second. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've got to hear that because I know there's so many times in your life where these truths that I just preached don't feel true. 
You can know they're true in your head, but there are times in your chest and in those places of insecurity and those places of uncertainty where these things don't feel true. There are some of you that came in today and you fear. You fear that maybe there's a place in your life where you have been cut off from the presence of God for things that you've done. There's a a place where you you fear that the presence of God is no longer for you in a way that it once was because of ways that you once knew it and you walked away and you're struggling to ever regain that again and you feel like maybe God has ejected on you. Others of you wonder, maybe you don't feel far from God today, but there's this like, there's this subtle, sneaky fear that like sort of lives in the background of your mind and your heart maybe because of past abandonment issues or past abandonment experiences where you fear, it's not that I feel far from God today, but is there ever a moment out there in the future where something could happen that God would eject on me out there? Some of you fear that. Is there a moment out there where the favor of God would run out? And if that's you, look at me. I want you to hear this. By the authority of the word of God and by the spirit of Jesus Christ, all of those fears have been crushed at the cross. They've been crushed at the cross and they're drowned in the blood of Jesus. Listen, Jesus didn't bleed out for you. He didn't spill his own blood to you for you just to bring you near to him, only then later to lose you. What a colossal waste of time the cross would be if that were true. The cross would have been a colossal waste of time for the Son of God if it would mean that he would bleed out in hopes of drawing you near to him, but he didn't have enough power to keep you forever. But that's not what's true. That's not what's true. He bled by his blood. He has brought us near. He's paid the price for everything that would ever cut us off from God. He's brought us near by his blood and his blood and his death did not hold him. Resurrection is now the new reality. So now he's strong, ever strong over death so that he'll never lose hold of you. He'll keep you forever. In fact, if we keep reading this passage, verses 14 through 16, I want you to see just how definitively and aggressively God has won us. Look at verse 14. He says, for he himself is our peace and he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus has so completely obliterated everything that would ever stand in the way of us being brought near. Notice the choice word of Paul in verse 15. He says, abolished, that he abolished the law of commandments, the works of righteousness that would get us approval with God. He abolished that. He could have used a variety of words here. He could have said he removed it. He could have said he set it aside. He could have said he got rid of it. But he doesn't say any of those words. He chose his words carefully, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He uses a much more powerful word. He says, abolished, obliterated, completely decimated. Anything that would ever stand as an obstacle between us and God, it's been abolished to create what verse 14 says, peace with God. 
And Jesus has killed the power of all sin that would ever bring hostility between us and God ever again. And so believer, this is your story. Like this is your story. This is what we're being commanded to remember. Yes, scene one is true. You were once separated. You were once alienated. You were once estranged from God and estranged from his people. You were hopeless. You were without God. It was dark, even darker than you know, because we never want to believe the dark things about ourselves. It was dark. But just as much as scene one is true, there's a glorious scene two written for all who look to Jesus. That Jesus, your warrior savior, has abolished everything that would stand between you and God by his bloody cross. He has brought you near. This is your story. This is what defines you. Listen, you are not who you think you are, believer. You are not what you think about yourself. You are not fundamentally what you feel about yourself. You are not what other people you think think about you. You're not what other people say about you. What defines you is Jesus, who has the final verdict, his work for you, and now what God says about you because of his work. He's abolished everything that would cut you off. And God's final verdict is you've been brought near. You've been brought near. That's what defines you. And so here's the ending today. The application on this Labor Day weekend is really clear. Rehearse your story. Remember your story. There is power in remembering that can give you new energy in your faith and affection for Jesus. How did Jesus save you, believer? How did he save you? Like, what, what were you caught up in when you first felt convicted of your sin? Where was your life headed? What were you doing? Remember when you first felt conviction for sin? Remember, when did you first believe on Jesus knowing that he was right and true? When did that happen? How did that happen? What changed because of Jesus? What was it like when you knew forgiveness for the first time? What was that like? Remember your story. Own your story. Your story is a trophy of God's grace. I want you to notice verse 17. We're almost done. Look at what he says. It says, he came and he preached peace to those of you who are far off. And he came and he preached peace to those of you who are near. This is for everybody in the room. Up to now, I've talked to those who are followers of Jesus in the room. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is an unbelievable passage that totally dismantles so many of what I think are preconceived ideas about God, that he's only for those who are for him. No, 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 no. Look at what verse 17 says. Jesus has come and he's preached peace. Not punishment. He's come and he's preached peace to those who what? Were far off. And he's come and he's preached peace to those who are near. Notice, Jesus doesn't discriminate. Jesus doesn't single out. Jesus doesn't profile. Jesus, Jesus doesn't play favorites. He's not for church people more than he's for not church people. He's just for people made in his image. And he's come and he's preached peace. 
So up to this point, I've talked to believers talking about the story of scene one and scene two. And maybe you're here today and all you know is scene one. That's all you know. Notice the message of Jesus to you. Peace. Not a fist. Not punishment. Not an ultimatum. Peace. I'm for you. My bloody cross proves it. I'm for you. Your story doesn't have to be the way it is today forever. Jesus stands to preach a new message and change it. So I know for me, I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, a few years ago, I took my family to the parking space where I was parked when Jesus collided into my little stupid pickup truck I had at 17 and changed my life forever. It was after soccer practice one day. I didn't want to go home. Things were busted there. I didn't want to turn to my friends. A girl I had liked just broke up with me. My soccer season was going terrible. It was Armageddon for a sophomore in high school, right? I hadn't thought about God in a long time. And I never really had a thought about God that mattered much. But that day in my little pickup truck in the parking lot of soccer complex, I now know it was the Holy Spirit. Then it was just, I had this thought that came into my head. <laughs> and the thought was, your life was made for God. I mean, I had done some things. For a sophomore in high school, I had a record, you know. But that thought supplied, my life was made for God. A senior on that team came up and he pulled in the parking lot and, and uh, he'd forgotten some shin guards there. And he goes, what are you doing? Because I looked a little freaky and creepy, you know, sitting in the parking lot by myself like 30 minutes after practice. And uh, I said, I looked at him, I was so arrested by that thought. I just said, my, my life was made for God. <laughs> and he looked back at me and he goes, if that means you can't party and like fool around with girls anymore, like I do all that stuff and I'm a Christian. And I remember looking back at him and I said, I, man, I, I don't think it works that way. I didn't know anything. I went home because it was the only place I knew you were supposed to pray either at church or at home kneeling by your bedside. And so I went home and I knelt down by my bed and I said, God, change my life and help me to believe in Jesus. And I can tell you, man, fireworks didn't go off in my room. I didn't get warm tinglys all over my body. I didn't feel like the weight of the world had been lifted from my shoulders. But I knew that God was for me. And from that day, I have stumbled. I have failed. I have, I have done all kinds of things that I wished I hadn't against him. But I know by his son, Jesus, that he's for me. And from that day to this, he's changed me and he's still changing me. He's changing me my story. Scene one. Scene two. He came and he preached peace. And so before the weekend ends, he, he, here's my plea. Before the weekend ends, rehearse your story. You got cookouts coming. You got grill outs coming. You got friends you're going to hang out with. You likely have some downtime planned. Tomorrow you have a day off. Breathe. And some of you are like, I don't got a day off tomorrow. Breathe, breathe, rehearse your story. Remember your story, remember the faithfulness of God. If you're in a community group this week, and I encourage you to find a group of believers to share life and faith with. Maybe group this week is just sharing stories around the room, remembering 
I was once separated, and here's how God saved me. And then someone else, I was once separated, and here's how God saved me. And someone else, I was once separated, and here's how God collided with me. I was once separated, and here's how he messed my life up for all the right reasons. Right? Wherever you are, remember your story. And also, believer in the room, as I'm finished today, as you go about your week, recognize that there's so many people around you who are stuck in scene one. There's so many people around you who are stuck in scene one and God has placed you where he's placed you, maybe, just maybe, to be a voice of what does scene two look like? What does scene two sound like? Maybe God would give you an opportunity to share your own story of grace. Let's stand together.